for leading and also for the singers for leading our congregational singing this morning, the musicians and everyone else involved in this service. Welcome also to those listening in the lounge and those listening in our residential home in New Haven Road. On Sunday, January the 30th, 1972, soldiers from the British Army's 1st Parachute Regiment confronted demonstrators protesting against internment without trial in Northern Ireland in the Bogside district in the city of Londonderry, or Derry as nationalists call it. In a 10-minute period, 13 civilians were shot dead and 14 others wounded giving rise to the name Bloody Sunday to describe the events of that day. And ever since that day, controversy has raged as to who was responsible for what happened. Did the British troops simply lose their discipline and open fire on unarmed uh, civilians? Or as some of them claimed, were they responding to shots from behind the protesters or other people behind the scenes? Did the troops act on orders? from within the army or even the British government? Or were the protesters acting on their own? Or were they being manipulated by members of the provisional IRA? The Prime Minister of the day, if you're old enough to remember, Edward Heath, set up an inquiry under Lord Widgery. However, his report, which didn't last particularly long, was regarded by many as a whitewash. But it was not until more than a quarter of a century later, when the National Archives were opened, that serious doubts were cast about the way that the Widgery inquiry was conducted and the evidence it heard. And this prompted the present government to set up another inquiry headed by Lord Savile. It's proved to be the longest running and costliest public inquiry in British legal history. It concluded this past week after 434 days of spoken evidence from 921 witnesses and read written statements from 1,555 people. Some 14 million words were spoken at the inquiry. This sermon, for those interested, will last around 5,000. So my computer tells me. And the cost of the inquiry, much of it in legal fees, is at least 155 million pounds. Uh, Christopher Clark, QC to the inquiry, started proceedings with an opening speech that lasted for 42 days. Most of you will struggle with a 42-minute sermon. And in his opening speech, Mr. Clark said that the tribunal's task was to discover as far as humanly possible, in the circumstances, the truth. Not the truth as people would like it to be, but the truth, pure and simple, painful or unacceptable, to whoever that truth may be. And we await Lord Savile's report, which is not due until at least next summer, to discover whether the inquiry has succeeded in its aims. There has, however, been a far more significant inquiry concerning the unlawful killing of just one person, which has lasted far, far longer than the Savile inquiry. It is beyond reasonable doubt that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified in the city of Jerusalem around the year AD 30 by our later reckoning. The question is, however, who was responsible for his conviction and subsequent execution? 
And this is no mere academic question. I don't exaggerate when I say that millions of people who in some way have been held responsible have been killed as a result, most of them Jews. However, I want to suggest this morning that all of us are in some way implicated in what happened on that day when Jesus died. A day which also has a name. Not Bloody Sunday, but paradoxically, amazingly, Good Friday. And today I want to look at the evidence taken from an eyewitness account recorded by a man named Mark and preserved in the New Testament of the Gospel that bears his name. And we've been making our way over this past year in this account under the heading Following Jesus. And today we come to Mark's account of the trial of Jesus before the Roman authorities in which he's sentenced to death. And you'll find it in the reading that was read for us by David in Mark 15, verses 1 to 20. Now, it really will help to have a Bible in front of you once more. If you don't have one, just reach around and get one and turn to Mark 15. And what I want to do in an inquiry that will not last 42 days or even probably 42 minutes, maybe just about that, and inquiry into the death of Jesus and those who were responsible. An inquiry into the death of Jesus and those who were responsible. And let us, like the Savile Inquiry, attempt with God's help to discover the truth. Not the truth as people would like it to be, but the truth pure and simple, painful or unacceptable to whoever that truth may be. Now, the first and most obvious group of people who were held responsible are the Jews. So, let's look at them and their part in the account. The people who arrested Jesus and brought him to trial were the religious leaders of Israel. In the opening verse of chapter 15, if you look closely, Mark describes them as the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a Jewish ruling council appointed by the Romans to oversee religious affairs in Israel. And it included all the chief priests and quite a few of the elders, the leading members of society. It numbered around 70 people and some of the teachers of the law of Moses. And although a few of these religious leaders were sympathetic to Jesus, the vast majority were opposed to him right from the beginning of his public ministry when he burst onto the scene in public life in Israel. You discover that in Mark 3 verse 6, right at the beginning of the Gospel, they are determined to kill Jesus. Now in contrast to that, it's clear from the accounts in all four Gospels that the vast majority of ordinary Jewish people supported Jesus, for he had a huge popular following who were attracted by his dynamic teaching, we've never heard anything like this, they said, and by his amazing powerful miracles. We've never seen anything like this, they said. And it was because of this popularity, because of the fear of provoking a riot if Jesus were arrested in broad daylight, especially during Passover, when thousands of people thronged the streets of Jerusalem, that the religious leaders looked for a more surreptitious opportunity to carry out their plans. If you turn back in Mark 14 and verse 1, you read there, now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to address, arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. And so they were looking for this opportunity. 
and it came very quickly when Judas Iscariot, one of the followers of Jesus, came to them and offered to betray his Lord and Master. Chapter 14, verse 10, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So they determined to kill Jesus, conspiring with Judas Iscariot. And on the Friday evening of Passover week, as we saw in our last study, Judas led a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests to teach the law and the elders. Chapter 14, verse 43. They came to the Garden of Gethsemane late in the evening and Judas betrayed his master with a kiss. So they arrested Jesus secretly. And while Judas was the agent in all this, was fully responsible for what he did, the plans to kill Jesus were hatched by the religious authorities. Judas was a pawn in their hands. Sadly, too late he discovered this. You can read that in Matthew 27, what happened to him. And if Judas had not made himself available, they would undoubtedly have found some other means of carrying out their plans. And as we saw again in our last study, if you've been with us in this series, the charge they bring against Jesus is a charge of blasphemy. In chapter 14, verses 55 to 65. And when asked directly by the high priest, verse 62 of chapter 14 are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one Jesus answers very clearly I am and in claiming not just to be the Christ or the Messiah which was not a capital offence anyway but rather the son of the blessed one that is the son of God they are agreed immediately that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy by claiming to be the son of God and so deserving of death however once you probe behind the scenes a little you discover that although there were religious reasons for killing Jesus, there were hidden motives. Motives which Pilate, being a sharp political operator, picks up on immediately Jesus is brought to him. Mark records that he toys with them by making an offer to release Jesus. Now we're in chapter 15, verses 9 and 10. Knowing that it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. So, the religious leaders, let's summarise, are determined to kill Jesus because they are motivated by envy. They are envious of Jesus and his popularity. They are threatened by the fact that he exposes their own inadequacies and hypocrisies. And with their status and position in society under threat, they are determined that the only solution is to do away with him. They are motivated by envy and by self-interest. Now, envy, as all of us may know, is a very powerful emotion. It's such a dangerous sin that it can lead to murder. The very first murder in human history was prompted by envy when Cain killed his brother Abel because he was jealous that his brother's sacrifice was accepted by God and not his, Genesis chapter 4. And now the same emotion which led to the first murder prompts the worst murder in human history as the religious leaders of Israel hand Jesus over to the Roman authority to be executed. So, the religious leaders of Israel, you cannot get away from the fact, bear a major responsibility for the death of Jesus. But, you may ask, were they the only ones of their countrymen who were implicated in what happened? What about the crowd who asked for Barabbas to be released instead of Jesus and then called for Jesus to be crucified? Much has been made over the years about the fickleness of the crowd. Uh, one of the verses in our opening hymn picked it up. Did you notice it? Sometimes they strew his way 
and his sweet praises sing, resounding all the day, hosannas to their king, then crucify is all their breath, and for his death they thirst and cry. And although there may have been some in the crowd that appeared before Pilate, who were there on that day when Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, the vast majority of them were probably different people. If you read carefully what happened, the crowd who appeared before Pilate have come specifically to ask him, as was the custom apparently, to release a prisoner at Passover. And they've got a man in mind. He's a popular freedom fighter. His name is Barabbas. One writer says Barabbas has the popular support of a Robin Hood, that kind of character. And they've come to ask for his release. Barabbas offers them the kind of kingdom they are seeking. One which will throw off the Romans by violent means and achieve their ends. It is doomed to failure. That kind of approach will ultimately lead to the destruction of the nation, the city and the temple. But this crowd want Barabbas and the kingdom that he offers. And Pilate takes the opportunity to offer them Jesus instead. But the crowd want Barabbas they reject Jesus as their king. Do you want the king of the Jews? No, they say, give us Barabbas. And the chief priest, this is a political game that is going on here, alert to Pilate's tactics, stir up the crowd to make, them sh- make sure that Pilate hears this message loud and clear. And when Pilate asked them what he is to do with Jesus, the one you call the king of the Jews, they cried, crucify him. And as so often in this situation, mob rule prevails and the rising chance of crucifying him drown out any possible objections or objectives. Yes, the crowd on that day are implicated in the death of Jesus. But behind the crowd are the religious leaders of Israel, the chief priests, who use the crowd like they have used Judas Iscariot to achieve their ends. And as we read this story and as we sang in our last hymn, we can so easily identify with the crowd, can we not? We find it easier to go along with the crowd than to stand out from the crowd. And before we know it, we are swept along by the hysteria of mob manipulators. We find ourselves joining in the cry of crucify him. And so Pilate, wanting to satisfy the crowd, verse 15, releases Barabbas and hands Jesus over to be flogged and then crucified. Now this reminds us of a second group of people who are implicated in the death of Jesus. Not just the Jews and their part, but look at the Romans and their part. The Jewish religious leaders, having found Jesus guilty of blasphemy and under, under their law of Moses worthy of death, still have a problem. Although the Roman law granted them many freedoms, the right to their own Jewish system, the Sanhedrin, their court system, they had no authority to order the death penalty. Of course, as we see later in the book of Acts, with the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, there were other ways they could kill people that they thought were guilty of blasphemy and get away with it. But in the case of Jesus, it's different. They want the Roman authorities to take responsibility, not just for the death of Jesus, but how Jesus is to be killed. Not just publicly humiliated, but also a death that will destroy any claims, they think, to him being the chosen Messiah, the Son of God. For the law of of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 21 declared that anyone who hung on a tree was cursed. If Jesus were to be crucified in this way, it would put pay to their claims, or so they thought. So they need to persuade Pilate, who was in Jerusalem for the Passover, it was the normal custom that the Roman prefect 
or procurator who had got to Jerusalem at these great big festivals, they need him to go along with their plans and pass the death sentence on Jesus. Now they know when they get to Pilate that it is no good saying to Pilate, we want you to kill this man, to execute him. And when Pilate says, what's the reason? He's guilty of blasphemy. Pilate will say, that's nothing to do with me or Roman law. That's a religious matter. You deal with it. They need a different charge. So notice the charge that is brought against Jesus by the religious leaders. Again, there's a political game going on here. It's implicit in Mark's account and the other three Gospels that they bring Jesus to Pilate and charge him with the crime of claiming to be the Messiah and so a threat to Rome's authority. Pilate wasn't bothered about people who claimed to be the Son of God. That was out of this world. But someone who said he was a Messiah... That is a political, has political overtones. And the Romans were very sensitive to that kind of thing. And so Pilate's question to Jesus, notice what he asks in verse 2. He says, are you the king of the Jews? And notice Jesus' answer. When he was asked by the high priest, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? He says very clearly, I am doesn't come out too clearly in our translation but when Pilate says are you the king of the Jews Jesus says yes it is as you say you could sort of paraphrase it Pilate says are you the king of the Jews and Jesus said you said it and Pilate knows immediately here's, here's a, a Roman governor he knows what's going on here he knows that Jesus is no threat to anybody and the chief priest therefore come along with all sorts of other accusations and Pilate's amazed he says how are you going to answer these well they're, they're, they're so ridiculous that they don't merit an answer on the part of Jesus and Pilate is amazed uh, Pilate has clearly weighed up the situation he recognises that Jesus is innocent and the motive behind this is envy on the part of the chief priests and so he attempts to release Jesus recognising that he is innocent now, as you read this, you need to see that his motive is not so much a desire to free Jesus as to embarrass the chief priests and the religious leaders with whom he had a long, on-running conflict that caused problems for the chief priests. Uh, Larry Hurtado comments, his motive for trying to release Jesus was likely that he's there to make life more difficult for the religious authorities so they would have less time to trouble him. But finally, Pilate realises he's getting nowhere. He gives in to the, the demands of the crowd, he releases Barabbas to them and hands Jesus over to the soldiers to be flogged and then crucified. Now, what are we to make of Pilate and his role in the death of Jesus? While many have overplayed the responsibility of the Jews in what happened, many people have underplayed the responsibility of the Romans and especially the character of Pilate. He's often been portrayed as, you know, basically a really good guy, but rather weak-willed, who lacked the moral fibre to stand up to the demands of the crowd, especially when, as John reports in his Gospel, they threatened to report him to Rome if he released Jesus, a man claiming to be a king, or Kaiser, Caesar. Some have gone even further, claiming that Pilate eventually became a Christian, led thousands to Christ, and if you know this, in the Egyptian church, Pilate is venerated as a saint. However, the legends are largely unsubstantiated and almost certainly not true. The facts of history about Pilate, not just from the Bible, but from other historical sources, 
tell a much more realistic and negative picture about this man. He was by all accounts a malicious and vindictive man. A very poor ruler and administrator as well. He was appointed as ruler, prefect, procurator over the province of Judea in AD 26. And in the ten years of his rule till AD 36, there were five major incidents that occurred in Judea. In four of them he provoked a riot with loss of life. If you know your Bible, Luke in his Gospel, chapter 13, refers to an incident in which Jesus was told about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. In the end, Pilate's rule was so totally incompetent that so many people complained about him that he was recalled to Rome and he retired in disgrace and according to one account was forced to commit suicide. And that is the kind of man that Pilate was. I hope as you're understanding this, it may seem just background information. It's a kind of shoddy story this, isn't it? And all the characters are involved, the shoddy characters. And that makes it all the worse, doesn't it really? Yes, Pilate was no doubt impressed by Jesus. We read that he was amazed that Jesus didn't respond. If you want to do an interesting story, as we've gone through Mark's Gospel, go back and underline all the words where it says people were amazed, astonished, perturbed, disturbed by Jesus. There are almost 30 of them I've counted. But in almost every case, the people who were amazed were amazed in nothing else. You, you may be amazed about Jesus. You may have read the Gospel story. You may be going to Christianity explore and think, wow, Jesus is different. There's something about him. But being amazed about Jesus is not enough. Being impressed by him is not enough. And it was not enough for Pilate when the chips were down. When self-interest kicks in, Pilate, frankly, does not care less. And simply like the Jewish leaders, and notice the same word is used, it's a very significant word in verse 1 and then verse 15, the religious leaders hand Jesus over to Pilate, and Pilate then hands Jesus over to the soldiers. Everybody is handing Jesus on. They want rid of him. A similar action, a similar responsibility. And while the rulers of Israel are motivated by envy and self-interest, Pilate is motivated, if this is not a contradiction in terms, is motivated by apathy, by indifference and self-interest. He hands Jesus over. In the NIV application commentary on Mark, which we've referred to several times, David Garland comments, Many today are like Pilate. They prefer Jesus to the envious, malicious high priests and the violent Barabbas. But that is as far as it goes. They see no harm in him, but they see nothing else and therefore see no reason to risk anything for him. They regard Jesus as simply the King of the Jews and do not recognise that he is the King of Kings. Maybe you're in that position this morning. Or you're interested enough. But you've never made that commitment to Jesus because it doesn't go any further. And you know that if you did make that kind of commitment to Jesus, it would cost you maybe a reputation, maybe certain lifestyle and habits that you would have to abandon if you were truly to follow Jesus. And so you remain at a distance, or you're impressed by Jesus. But when push comes to shove, self-interest kicks in, and you hand him on to someone else. You want nothing to do with him. And so Pilate has Jesus flogged. A Roman flogging was a fearful thing, often resulting in the death of the person who was flogged as his flesh was laid bare to the bones with a whip made of leather and embedded with pieces of metal and stone. And here we see the brutality of the soldiers. 
Jesus is led away then to the palace called the Praetorium, probably the fortress of Antonia, which was in the walls of Jerusalem overlooking the temple where the Roman garrison was housed. We read that all the soldiers were called out. It could have been as many as 600 soldiers. That was a full complement. Or maybe a third of that, 200. It wasn't just as we see in the films and pictures, you know, a couple of soldiers who were taking it out on Jesus. This was a whole detachment of soldiers who were going to have a bit of fun with this king of the Jews. The claim seems so ridiculous that they take the opportunity to taunt and humiliate Jesus. They strip him of his clothes and we read they put a purple robe on him. Almost certainly it wasn't a proper purple robe. They were so valuable, the dye was made from some kind of Mediterranean shellfish and was extremely expensive. They probably took a scarlet tunic from one of the soldiers and put it on him. They weave a crown of thorns, probably made from the spikes on the base of a palm tree or a local thorn bush that grew there. And they press it onto his head and then they ridicule him, crying out, Ave, Caiaphas, hail, king of the Jews. They strike him again and again on the head with a staff and they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they pay homage to him. When they finish, they take off the purple robe, put his own clothes back on him and lead him out to be crucified. Interestingly, while the religious leaders mocked Jesus because of his claim to be a prophet we saw that in chapter 14 they mocked Jesus because of his claim to be a king in actual fact did they know it he is both prophet and king now why did the soldiers treat Jesus in this way I have to say it's doubtful whether they had some particular grudge against Jesus that made them do this you imagine if you're a member of a Roman garrison looking after a country where people didn't want you to be you know, you're the occupying force we've seen that in Iraq and some other places where the locals take it out on you in every opportunity, maybe a stone thrown at you or maybe one of your colleagues killed surreptitiously by people you can't get your hands on, guerrilla tactics that kind of thing happened in Judea all the time and so along comes this man Jesus who claims to be the king of the Jews and he's simply an opportunity to take it out on one of the locals you only have to look sadly at the treatment meted out to some Iraqi prisoners by the American troops and the reasons behind it. Why do people do this? Well, they've been provoked. But whereas thankfully such behaviour is a rare exception, thankfully among the American troops in Iraq, it's a common practice for the Roman soldiers of the, of the day and in other occupied parts of the Roman Empire. So the sad and even more shoddy thing again about this is that what they did on that dreadful day was simply for them par for the course just normal behaviour and unlike the American soldiers there's nobody going to call them to account nobody going to punish them they need have no such fears they can do as they please and they do as they please as seen, as, as seen in the case of Jesus now none of this is to excuse their behaviour I simply state it to explain it just as the crowds were manipulated and used by the Jewish religious authorities so the Roman soldiers are used and manipulated as a tool of the civil authorities so let's pause for a moment who was responsible in our inquiry for the death of Jesus? well the Jews were and the Romans were strange alliance isn't it of religious and civil powers conspiring together to commit the worst crime in, in human history the false conviction the humiliation and execution of the only truly innocent victim there has ever been. So, does our inquiry stop there? Who was responsible? The Jews and the Romans. 
Is that the full extent of our own responsibility in the death of Jesus? While we may identify with the envy of the Jewish religious leaders or the apathy of Pilate, the complicity of both the crowds and the Roman soldiers, is that the extent of our responsibility? I think not. Let me conclude by coming finally to the point. Looking beyond the obvious guilt of both the Jews and the Romans to a third person in the story and our own guilt. Look for a moment at Barabbas and our part. Behind the obvious part of the Jews and Romans in the death of Jesus, there is an underlying subplot in Mark's account which focuses on Barabbas. It's very instructive to compare Barabbas with Jesus. In fact, there are some texts of the New Testament that tell us that Barabbas had another name. His name was Jesus called Barabbas. Jesus was a popular name. It means in Hebrew, Joshua. Many Jewish parents gave their sons this name after the popular hero whose exploits are described in the Hebrew Scriptures in the book that bears his name. Whether those texts are accurate or not, it's interesting to compare. Here you have Jesus called Barabbas and Jesus called the King of the Jews. Look more closely at them. What has Barabbas been charged with? He's been charged and convicted of taking part in an uprising against the Roman authorities during which he committed murder. He's been found guilty of the crime. He is guilty. He's sentenced to death. Yet at the end of the day, Barabbas goes free. Contrast this with Jesus. He is charged with a similar crime to that of Barabbas. In claiming to be the king of the Jews, therefore he's guilty of the same crime of insurrection against Rome. Of course, he's totally innocent of such a, such a charge. Yet he's arrested and sentenced to death. And instead of going free, he goes to the cross. Jesus dies the death that Barabbas deserved, while Barabbas goes free. Now, the fact that this is what we're to understand from the story, not some kind of preacher's spiritualization of it, is seen in the attitude of Jesus throughout. Throughout this story, notice that Jesus is a willing, willing victim. If you do a count, which you probably won't do, but let me tell you, in this whole story, Jesus is the subject of nine verbs and the object of 56. See, at any time, Jesus could have called in legions of angels to save him, to wipe out these terrible Roman soldiers and what they're doing, and Pilate and the religious authorities. Yet he chooses to suffer in silence. You see, he knows what must happen and what he must do. He's already told his disciples the Son of Man must be handed over to the religious authorities who will hand him over to the Gentiles and they will beat him and kill him. And on the third day he'll rise again, Mark chapter 10, verses 33 to 34. And later in chapter 10 he says, the Son of Man must suffer and give his life as a ransom for many. All that Jesus does behind the action is God's plan. All this is the fulfilment of the scriptures. Now just ponder these. We're almost at an end, but these are the most important. This is the most important part of what I have to say this morning. Here's what the prophet Isaiah says. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, 
the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Isaiah 53, 5-7. These are remarkable words that describe what Jesus is doing. He is willingly giving himself, not just for the people around, but for each one of us. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He is going to the cross in our place. This is the gospel. This is the fulfilment of God's plan. Isaiah goes on to write paradoxically in chapter 53 verse 10, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. This is God's great plan of salvation. As in the case of Barabbas, he takes our place, dying the death that we deserve so that we might be free like Barabbas. Do you know what Barabbas means? Aramaic. It means Bar Abbas, son of the Father. So that we might become sons of the Father. Forgiven, reconciled, brought into his family. We just sang it. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. An older hymn puts it, guilty, vile and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a saviour. And unless you understand this, you've never really understood what the Christian faith is about and why Jesus came and what the gospel is all about. And I'm just aware that my feeble words have not communicated it very well, but maybe the Holy Spirit can take those words of Scripture and impress them on your heart. Let me say something in conclusion. Almost finished. One of the most contentious issues arising out of Mel Gibson's controversial film, The Passion of the Christ, was that he was accused of arousing anti-Semitism by blaming the Jews for the death of Jesus. And Mel Gibson's answer was to point out something that many people had not noticed or known. In the film, when Jesus is crucified, it is Mel Gibson's hand that holds the spike as the soldier drives it into the hand of Jesus. He says, I'm making a point. Were the Jews responsible? Yes. Were the Romans responsible? Yes. But so were you and I. We were responsible. Who was responsible for the death of Jesus? Each one of us. The question is, have we acknowledged our guilt? Have we recognised with sadness, yet also with gratitude, that Jesus died on the cross, took my place, your place? And have we accepted the forgiveness that he offers? The Gospel is all about the forgiveness of sins. That's why he died as a sin offering. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Unless we acknowledge our guilt and our responsibility in this and receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers, then we remain in our sin. Our guilt remains and it is all the greater because we refuse to accept the wonderful salvation that God achieved 
and that God offers when his son the Lord Jesus Christ went to a cross and died the death that we deserve this is the gospel good news we were thinking in next week already about Christmas good news great joy for all people he was born a saviour it's Christ the Lord that's the beginning of the story this is the end but not the end for God raises him from the dead and he lives forevermore he is king of kings and lord of lords have you bowed the knee to him let's come to him in prayer now as we pray